All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello, friend. This is an episode of Note to Self, but from when we used to be called New Tech City. Same good content, just the old name. Enjoy. This is WNYC's New Tech City, where digital gets personal. I'm Manoush Samarodi. This week, responding to a humanitarian disaster in your pajamas. We want to start with a story from a young Filipino man named Joseph Racer Cernal. Racer, for short. I am 24 years old. I am a native from Tacloban City. He called us up on Skype from an internet cafe near his family's home. You'll hear an insistent rooster crowing in the background throughout. Anyway, last year, Racer was far away from home. Really, really far. Nearly 7,000 miles away from Tacloban City, his hometown. He was studying in Brussels when Typhoon Haiyan hit. My family stayed in our house because... They don't really expect this, that, that kind of um, a strong a Category 4 super typhoon. So. Remember, this was a Category 4 super typhoon. Massive flooding. The whole city was flattened. Racer's family gets caught in the storm surge. Their wood house is destroyed, and they flee to a concrete rooftop next door. And then they were trapped inside, my mother and my brother and, and even my dog. I have a Labrador retriever. And now here's the sad part. His mother is trapped in the water, holding on to a wire. His sister is too, but she's losing her strength. She, she let go because my, my mother was telling her that, come on, uh, grab some, some, some wire, because they were holding the, 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 uh, wire. The sister doesn't make it. Racer's mother is injured badly. She's got a head wound from falling debris, and she needs medical attention. And this is the thing about disasters. If help can't get in, the death toll usually goes up fast in the first few days. Meanwhile, back in Belgium, Racer's been getting updates from home on Facebook. But then the updates peter out. He has no idea what's happening to his family. Did they end up evacuating? Have they just lost power? Or is it something much worse? He panics and starts asking for help the only way he can, on Facebook. Because uh, I don't know how, what to do. I, I posted some on my wall. I, I was asking help. Racer's message gets passed around Facebook friends and their friends and their friends. And then it reaches Donna Lee Weber. You know, I don't like to talk about myself too much, but I love talking about social media emergency management. <laughs> That's what Donna does. She's a virtual volunteer. Even though she lives on Long Island, no closer to Tacloban City than Racer, But she knows how to get help online. She puts the word out on Twitter. And her message spreads to the Red Cross and other volunteers on the ground. There's a family that probably needs food, medical care, maybe even an evacuation in a neighborhood that's been hit hard by the storm surge. In the meantime, I'm in communication with Racer on Facebook. And 
we get as close a description they were by a bridge as we can get. Donna is actually a new kind of first responder, a digital disaster responder. So Racer works with Donna and her social media team to contact the family any way they can. And they're actually able to get some brief updates from them through spotty phone connections and neighbors, just enough to guide first responders there with vital medication. And even more importantly, rescue workers now know where the family is, how many of them there are, their condition, and what it would take to get them out. That's one fewer trip on foot in these crucial days after the storm. I, I, I think my parents will die, my family, because... Uh, Racer says his mother would have died if not for Donna and her team. But some died after the disaster because they were starving, they have no foods, and they, they were sick. Donna's network of virtual volunteers is called Info for Disasters, with the number four. They are self-organized, self-directed, and self-appointed. Reporters Matt Fiddler and Sophia Palisa Carr spent time with Donna and other virtual volunteers who are changing how aid organizations deal with unfolding crises like the one in Tacloban City. Sophia picks up the story with Donna's Info for Disasters co-founder, a former Red Cross volunteer named Lisa Estrado. Lisa has health problems and she can't get out much anymore, but that's okay. She does what she can in front of a computer screen. Welcome to the headquarters of Lisa Estrado's Disaster Relief Center. You're saying hello? Ah! Yes, hello. They have a cookie, they'll be quiet. Yes, it's her house. It's a small suburban tract rancher, and her dogs wear these tiny little t-shirts. And those are the wind chimes on her back porch in Abita Springs, Louisiana, about an hour north of New Orleans. Lisa's on a much-needed smoke break. Terrible habit. And one thing is, though, when I'm real busy... With a huge disaster, I don't take time to come out and smell the roses and have a cigarette. It's only one o'clock, and she's already crisscrossed the globe, monitoring the Ferguson protests, sending out first aid tweets about tear gas in Hong Kong, and supervising an operation in West Africa with a volunteer group called the Standby Task Force. And what we're doing is searching for health facilities and clinics in Sierra Leone, Guinea, Nigeria. The idea is to create a public map of geolocated data points, a map that other organizations can then use to coordinate where doctors and nurses should be going. Though it's not super clear yet how this would work. She works from her bedroom, giving remote support to those boots-on-the-ground responders, like the ones you see in the background of disaster coverage on CNN, all through her computer. This is the office, the bedroom. I always tell people that... um, They're all in bed with me. (laughs) When I'm working, I'm usually sitting in my bed. She gets her info from all over the place. Google, satellite imagery, and local volunteers through a mapping organization called OpenStreetMap. But her biggest tool is Skype. This is the platform used for organization, so that you don't overlap what another volunteer might be doing. Lisa opens the Ebola Healthcare and Team Leads window on her screen. Where people leading a project will be able to um, brainstorm together, maybe discuss, are there any other volunteers you know of that we can contact that might be a huge benefit to this activation? Now that we have a map, phase two of the Ebola activation is done. But the geocoded data they have still needs to be picked up by people on the ground to be put to use. That's next, phase three. 
it's Manoush here. I just want to jump in with a little more about who these virtual volunteers actually are. Some of them are younger techie types, you know, data scientists or mapping geeks who realize that they have the skills to contribute from afar. But then there's the somewhat older people like Lisa, former on-the-ground volunteers or NGO workers who are trying to stay in the game. Maybe they have some expertise or contacts that they want to put to use. And all of them, well, they just sort of show up online in various chat rooms and try to pitch in, however they can. 55 years old, and I'm on disability, so I find that I can still work helping people from my home. If I was to ask my daughter how much time I spend on my disaster work, she'd say about 60 to 80 hours a week. Every day, she boots up her computer at 9 a.m. and checks Skype to figure out where she's most needed. If there's no disaster going on, you know, I'll be on and off during the day. You know, sometimes I can get on the computer at the beginning of the earthquake and spend, you know, 20, 30 hours at a time working that one disaster. So one reason that Lisa can find so much to do is that during a disaster, there's all kinds of chatter and info that either can't get out or gets lost and confused. So Lisa tries to grab hold of the most important floating bits of information and kind of like a telephone operator, plugs them into where they need to go. Like telephone operators working from home. Okay, so digital disaster volunteers can be helpful, and they certainly work hard. But how do big disaster organizations feel about the Donnas and the Lisas of the world? I think what we learned quickly was that digital volunteering can be a very intense experience for them. Reaction from the Red Cross on virtual volunteering. That's coming up on New Tech City. Quick update, though, from your letters. Last week, we interviewed two men we called the other Ed Snowdens, cryptographic bad boys who also stood up to the government in the name of privacy, Ladar Levison and Bill Binney. And we mentioned that my conversation with them took a turn for the wonky, so wonky and filled with indecipherable cryptographic geekery that we decided not to put it all in the podcast. But dozens of you emailed us and asked for that part of the conversation. Okay, so Lewis, he wrote and said he chose carefully which email to use to contact us about Levison and Binney because he assumed that it would be, as he called it, vacuumed up by Apple, Google, the NSA, or whoever. Okay, so Sabrina also joked, and I'm quoting here, I wonder if I'm opening myself up to increased surveillance by mentioning their names in this email. I hope not, but... Not surprisingly, a bunch of the emails you sent us came from encrypted email services. So that was kind of cool, too. Joseph told us about how he tried and eventually gave up encrypting his communications to us. He said, I don't want to feel like I'm always on the run when I'm just trying to check movie times or slingshot birds into piles of wood. Me, too. We have posted a link to that longer conversation with Binny and Levison at NewTechCity.org because so many of you wanted it. So thanks for caring. You ask for wonkery and we deliver. This is New Tech City from WNYC. I'm Anoush Samarodi. And we're being taken through the world of digital disaster volunteering with reporter Sophia Polisakar. 
Let's think back to Donna Lee Weber's story in Typhoon Haiyan. From thousands of miles away, she was able to help Racer's family. But it wasn't really a happy ending. Yes, his family got out mostly intact, but he still ended up losing his sister. And I suppose these volunteers are watching it all play out in real time. They get a little update, then they go away, then they're waiting. They get another incomplete update, waiting some more. Nerve-wracking. It's super stressful. The experience of being a witness, even a digital witness, to something like that can be pretty intense. With the typhoon case, it's somewhat unusual because generally, digital volunteers work in kind of a void. They have no clue if their tweets or their posts are reaching anybody. They almost never get to hear the endings to the stories that they work on. But people like Donnelly Weber and Lisa Estrado, they aren't the type to just walk away and move on. So if you've you know, located 10 shelters... And you know there's 20 more. You, you have to keep going. For Lisa, working on the Typhoon Haiyan operation just became too much. I can go through a deployment normally and keep my emotional side in one place and just know that I'm helping people. But, but during this particular deployment, I was looking at all the pictures. I was reading everything. I couldn't separate my emotions from the work I was doing. She suffered what's known as compassion fatigue, or vicarious trauma, without even stepping outside of her house. She felt the pain of the people that she was helping, and her sense of empathy was exhausted. I was physically sick over the thought of getting back on my computer. All she did for days was lie in bed with the TV on. I think that we're stepping into a a new and uncharted territory when you're talking about taking care of the digital disaster volunteer. This is Lisa Orloff. She's the executive director of World Care Center, an organization that started after 9-11 to help manage the huge influx of spontaneous volunteers who wanted to help, but had no training. In the past, you've gone there, you've shown up, you've connected with people, there's a check-in, there's a natural support system around you, people that know you, people that can check in like we discussed, the pre-brief and the debrief. There's less of an established community, less institutional support, and less validation when you work alone behind a screen every day. So, Sophia, you tried to find out what the big traditional disaster volunteers think of these other armchair aid workers, the people who work out of their homes, they're only, they're looking at screens all day, they're not actually there. Do these guys all play nice together, or is there, do they irritate each other? What's the situation here? Well, the big picture here is that everyone knows this isn't a fad anymore. These days, digital disaster volunteers are on the edge of every emergency, so the aid world is being forced to adapt. But while there's a push to address them, that doesn't necessarily mean there's any coordinated action yet. We spoke to Laura Howe at the American Red Cross. I'm the vice president of public relations for the Red Cross. She says it was during the Haiti earthquake of 2010 that the Red Cross really noticed this trend. They saw how helpful these volunteers could be to monitor social media or to do what they call social listening. We were actually getting tweets from the Haitian diaspora community here in the United States. We were getting Facebook posts directed at the Red Cross, and they were giving us information they were hearing directly from their relatives on the ground in Haiti. And that information was anything from, I have a relative who's trapped, and they would give us a specific address. Or I have a relative who lives in a certain neighborhood in Port-au-Prince and they don't have water. 
And so we were getting this kind of very, very personal, very granular information. And it was all really flowing to us through social media. So all of a sudden, there's this huge new data stream to make sense of and respond to. So the Red Cross partners with Dell in 2010 to create social media data centers, first in D.C. and now in Dallas. These centers stack up all of the social media conversations surrounding a crisis to see if any of them connect. During Sandy, these data centers looked at 2.5 million pieces of social data. And when you say 2.5 million pieces, you mean 2.5 million tweets and Facebook posts and comments and all those things. Right. And out of that, we really found about 300 or so um, pieces of data that pointed to larger trends in needs that people had. Like which neighborhoods needed more food trucks or whether cots were more badly needed than bottles of water. They're really the arms and legs for that listening. And then they can also go back to people in the social community, ask questions, respond, and offer actionable information. They've been trying to incorporate digital volunteers here and there since 2012, but there's still no formal system. Overall, nationally, they only have an estimated 150 of these digital volunteers. And there's still a lot to figure out. Thank you so much, Sophia. Thanks, Manoush. This story was reported for us by Matt Fiddler and Sophia Polisakar. Next week on New Tech City, people who play video games are getting older. And they're getting kind of tired of shooting them up. For me, you know, I am just cresting 40. And my life is about friends and family, people... um, sort of making hard choices in their lives as they get a little bit older about how they spend their time and what they engage in. We look at what the older generation of video game players, if you are over 30 years old, that we're talking to you. We're looking at what sorts of games you are going to be playing in the future. And if you're not playing them yet, trust me, you probably will be. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Thanks so much for listening to New Tech City. You can always hit us up on Twitter at New Tech City or me directly at Manoush Z. We love getting email from you, encrypted or not. Either way is fine. We're at newtechcity at wnyc.org. See you soon. You know, I always tell people during deployments to stop at the smell of roses And so I literally, I I don't have roses, but I literally do come out in my yard and pull weeds.